I was confident and sure that I could make a good product still does, you know, humble me and surprise me that people supported it. You know, I've got customers still that I've had from day one and have sort of seen the full evolution of our product list and, and um, you know, how we've evolved the business and sort of supported us along the way. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's just a great feeling to sort of have, you know, people that I, I know and respect that have followed me and, and continue to support me all the way. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. A career in food may be a calling for many, but it's not until one has their hands on the pans, deliberating over harmony and balance, that they find what truly connects them to the food we eat. Chefs have so many experiences at their fingertips, a strong connection with the land and those that farm it, and the more intimate finale of guests enjoying the spoils of their labour. Within those experiences lies moments that can set anyone off in a new direction, and often one they'd never before considered. While making small goods at one of Melbourne's finest restaurants, Mick Nunn discovered his calling and it set him on a path of discovery through Spain, France, and to his hometown of Ballarat, where he's producing some of Australia's best charcuterie. Well, Mick, how does a boy from Ballarat carve out a career as a chef, home and abroad, and end up as one of Australia's best charcuterie makers? Yeah, well, when you put it like that, it's been a journey, really, hasn't it? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Western Victoria, in Ballarat, I'm one of four boys. Um, I've got three brothers, um, competitive um, children, as you know, one of four boys will always would be. Um, and look, I had a fairly simple Western Victorian upbringing, really, in terms of food. Um, you know, I'm not from a French, Italian, Spanish background, so I don't have stories of, you know, Nonna teaching me how to make pasta or um, dishes that have been in the family for heaven knows how long uh, I'm um, I, it's, it's purely come from my own interest and love of food that I've sort of entered into it. And I, I did when I was a kid, I did in sort of year 10, they place you to put to, to, to go and do things um, work experience. And I went to a restaurant and um, only needed a day in there and sort of fell in love with the buzz of it. And, and that's kind of how it started for me. I finished, finished high school and then I was straight in the kitchen two weeks after um, I'd finished year 12. So, yeah. Well, tell us a bit about your career as a chef. I mean, we'll get to the charcuterie side of things and, and what you've achieved there. But tell us a bit about your career as a chef and um, some of the main influences. Yeah, I was, I've been lucky to have some great mentors along the way. So um, when I first uh, you know, decided I wanted to be a chef, uh, I had a family friend by the name of John Dench who's actually got Dench Bakers in, Bella, in uh, Melbourne now and he was a chef at the time and took me on as an apprentice. Um, I considered staying at home. You know, I was only 17 when I finished high school. Um, but John sort of said, you know, you need to come to Melbourne to try and um, apply this trade because at the time there wasn't a hell of a lot in Ballarat, um, you know, in terms of high-end restaurants or anything like that. Um, so his advice was sort of come to Mel Melbourne and do my apprenticeship down there. And, um, yeah, I started out in cafes, the Continental Cafe and Mario's Cafe on Brunswick Street, a bit of institutions back in the 90s. Um, yeah, so that's sort of where I, I cut my teeth at the start um, and, and got involved in commercial kitchens. Um, and, you know, 
on John's advice, he was sort of like, you know, you always need to be looking um, to, to better yourself, especially during your apprenticeship. So um, I was lucky enough to be uh, to get a job with the Grossies when they first opened Grossi Florentino on on Burke Street. Yeah. So I sort of went into that kitchen um, pretty raw, to be honest. I was um, still only a kid, 19 years old, um, out of Ballarat, basic knowledge on food, which was, you know, cafes in, in Melbourne. But I wanted to try and extend myself. I wanted to experience something that was at a higher level. Um, so the Grossies were good enough to take me on. And they were, real, they were a real influence on me. Uh, Guy and Chris Rodriguez, his head chef, they were um, fantastic. They took me under their wing. But also, you know, chefs that were in that kitchen, um, guys like Frank Camora. Um, I worked under Frank for a year and a half um, at Florentino. So some amazing um, experienced chefs that have obviously gone on to do wonderful things um, that I sort of got to learn from and um, be taught by was fantastic. Are there any dishes from that period of time that have sat with you since then? Oh, look, the Grossi's, the Abacchio alla Romana, um, the Abacchio alla Romana is still something that I use today in in um, my career as a charcutiere as well. Um, and I reluctantly call myself a charcutiere because I don't have a French qualification, but I've been going at this for long enough now. But I'm it, it, the Abacchio alla Romana was my first whole carcass butchery Um experience and how to break down um these you know suckling lambs these milk fed lambs um and it, when i first you know when frank Mora basically showed me how to do it and said right you're doing the next one i was like shit this is <laughs> this is um this is intense you know he handed over a butcher's knife uh and a um and a cleaver and said now you do it um and that was that was um a great experience on how to concentrate with a carcass um, and what you need to extract from the whole body of an animal. What, where did you go from there? You ended up cooking in London as well before, long before you became uh, known for what you do now. Yeah, it's sort of um, cooking took me overseas. A lot of chefs that I was working with and around, um, it was a fairly typical thing that people were heading off to London and doing their doing their stint on, in London. I actually did it twice. I went over once in 2001 and then went back again in 2003 um, for another three years. So I loved it so much that I had two cracks at it. But um, I I went over and I worked in sort of I – I got a really broad um, sweep of the hospitality industry, if I'm being honest. You know, I've gone from sort of cafes in Melbourne to a high-end restaurant, Italian restaurant in Melbourne, Landed in London, got a job in a five-star hotel, um, and then found myself working um, for uh, catering companies at the top end of um, you know Canary Wharf, um, cooking for for the elite, I suppose. And um, that was under uh, Rue Fine Dining, so Albert Rue had sort of an arm of contract catering. And then I found myself um, in a in a um, a club in Mayfair working in a club in Mayfair, which was long hours, hard work. Um, and my first head chef's job when I was in England was at a wine merchant at Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is a famous old um, wine merchant for fine wine around the world. Um, and that was a great experience for me to actually develop my palate. I sort of worked day in and day out with masters of wine, um, matching food and wine um, to some of the best wines around the world. It was, yeah, I, I was there for 12 months and someone of – 
Um, my pay level, age, and experience had no business drinking the sort of wines that I got to try every single day. <laughs> um, you know, first growth um, Bordeaux, you know, uh, Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Burgundy. It was incredible. You know, a twenty-something-year-old a bloke from Ballarat had a, a, an opinion on Grange and the different vintages of it. It's just not supposed to happen, you know. But um, I was very, very lucky to sort of um, learn from these guys about how they when they drink wine and they taste wine, how they break it down, um, pull it apart and taste the nuances in the wine. And I started to do that with food. I started to really extract flavour um, and think about flavour in a way that I probably never had before. What, what led you to leave the industry? You carved out a career and um, loved cooking, but you ended up putting the apron down and picking up a different one. Can you tell us about that period of time? Yeah, I... So I came back from the UK to Melbourne um, and I worked in a number of jobs, you know, running kitchens across Melbourne. Um, and I think as as a chef, you know, as you sort of get 10 years plus experience, you start to figure out um, what, the, what the long-term goal starts to look like. And I think, you know, some guys you know, they love pastry or baking and, you know, it ultimately leads them to opening a patisserie or a bakery or, um, you know, some sort of find that um, fine dining path and they have that aspiration of one hat, two hat, three hat. Um, for me, every time I made something in a kitchen that was, you know, uh, charcuterie, salumi, um, that's what gave me the most joy. And I always talk about, you know, the best moment about what I get to do day in and day out is that first cut when I get to open up a capicolo and see the cross-section of something that's been maturing for three months and then we get to touch, feel, smell it. It's a, oh, like it's still, I still get that feeling, that, you know, that excitement out of that cut. Um, and as long as that lasts, um, I'll, I'll feel lucky within my job, you know. You mentioned a little earlier that you don't have a French or Italian or Spanish heritage, um, but those cultures... You know, charcuterie and small goods is integral to their food. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the exploration that you had in France and, and the Basque country to absorb knowledge for what you do? Yeah, well, I mean, that was a, it was a realisation, I suppose. After working as a chef and making it, uh, making charcuterie and salumi on an amateur level um, in, in a commercial kitchen, um, and like, like you've just said, you know, I didn't come out of making these products as a kid growing up and having salami days with family and you know uh, this accent comes from living in western victoria for most of your life i can't get rid of it it is what it is you know um it's um <laughs> um but you know i've learned to love and embrace it <laughs> um so you know I, I knew that i was transitioning from um one industry into an industry that i had some knowledge of but not a broad enough knowledge of um and I wanted some real experience um, of making it outside of what I could, you know, make within a kitchen, you know, make with other people around me and deduce from um, books and things like that, obviously, is where it all starts. Um, so, you know, locally I was sort of doing salumi days here and, um, you know, if there was a day in a, in a kitchen somewhere where they were making salamis or charcuterie, I was, I was there. Um, but ultimately I wanted to go to France, Spain or Italy to 
find out, um, you know, to go to the source essentially. These are products that they've been making for generations and I wanted to sort of see that, feel that and experience it. Um, I'm, I'm waffling, I'm sorry, but uh, it, it sort of led me to the point where I, I scoured and scoured and I found an expat American who was living in the southwest of France by the name of Kate Hill um, and she had a relationship with a family of charcutiers, the Chapelards in Gascony. And um, so they were an on-farm um, charcuterie. They had the charcuterie set up next to the old chateau. Uh, they grew everything they fed to the pigs on-farm. Uh, and then they produced the charcuterie and sell everything at local markets. So it was all retail. They, they weren't supplying restaurants or, or, or food service. So I heard this and I was like, okay, I need to see that. That's what I want. I want to, I want to, get, I want to see what, what it is to take an animal from a French paddock, butcher on-site, and then go to market. That's that was that was something that I wanted to sort of I wanted to see, touch, feel myself. What did you take away from the experience and the journey over there? What were the sort of things that you sort of took home with you? Well, I went there with um, with work on mind. So I, any opportunity I could take to spend more time on charcuterie, making charcuterie, I took it um, to the point where I'd. I was actually staying with Dominique and Christiane so that Dominique was the older brother. He's one of four brothers um, in the Chapelard family and they all had their own role on the farm. So one sort of looked after the farming, essentially. Um, they all sort of did the markets, but Dominique ran the charcuterie. Um, and I was lucky enough to stay with them a few nights and and that basically meant it gave me the opportunity to get up at three in the morning, go down to the abattoir with the pigs for slaughter because I wanted to see the whole process, you know, from st- from start to finish. Um, you know, so you'd go, you'd go to the abs at, um, you know, 4 a.m. The pigs would be processed. You'd collect the blood, take it back, so that you made the boudin noir straight away, so that it, you were using it as fresh as possible. Um, you know, it it didn't, it wasn't always, it didn't always play in my favour. One time when I was at the abattoir, they gave me the pig stomachs to clean, and I vowed to clear never to have to do that again because that is a disgusting job. If anyone's <laughs> ever done it, they'll know what I mean. Um, yeah, so it doesn't always work work in your favour, but um, I'm better for the experience, that's for sure. But you came back to Australia with ideas and you, you went back to your, your hometown. Tell us about the, this, the beginnings of Salt Kitchen and, and how you got that started. Um, so Salt Kitchen was always an idea before before it actually landed as, oh, we're going to do this in Ballarat back in my hometown, it kind of um, organically happened. I had a relationship in commercial kitchens with Western Plains Pork and Judy Crow in particular. Um, and before and before I left, I, I sat down with Judy and sort of said, look, I'm going over to France to, I want to upskill myself. I want to learn more about how to make these products. But when I come home, um, I need a pig farmer that, um, is receptive to what I've got to say when I come back um, and listen to some ideas that I've got a, a up for it. And she was really excited and um, and she convinced him, her husband, to go along for the ride, which is great. Um, but, you know, I, I came back to Australia and I suppose it's a bit of, you know, the stars align where, you know, Western Plains Pork are literally 30 minutes from our doorstep here at Salt Kitchen, you know, in Ballarat. So um, they're, they're a local pig farmer 
that had the um, had the right breeding of pig as well. One thing I learnt when I was in Gascony, but also I did a bit of time down in the Basque Country. Um, that they use white, large white cross pigs. You know, Duroc, a lot of Duroc um, breeding through their pigs as well. And that's the, there was a nice lineup there with French pigs and what was being produced at Western Plains Pork. Um, but one of the main things that I brought back was, you know, Australia, we're a British market, you know, we, we produce pigs um, and they get slaughtered traditionally sort of, and they're hanging on a butcher's hook at around that 50 kilo mark dress weight. Um, the ones I was working with in France, you know, charcuterie pigs, they're 150 kilos plus on the hook. So, you know, these are big pigs. So we had to come back and figure out a way that we were going to be able to get pigs that could be grown out um, to try and mimic the muscle structure, fat content, um, you know, and that that level of, of pig that you need to make the products that I wanted to make, you know, um, coming back. Well, tell us a bit more about that. What's so important about having a pig of that size and that structure for charcuterie? Well, fat content is, is crucial. Um, you know, we all eat charcuterie and marvel at, you know, Hamon and prosciutto di Parma, prosciutto San Daniele, um, Bayon ham about how delicious and silky velvety the fat is. You know, it's just, it's something else. And um, you can't get that um, out of out of a pig that hasn't, hasn't had a life in the paddock that, you know, has been able to develop its muscles, um, put the, lay enough fat on um, and ultimately become a size and, um, the, the thing is with the muscles as well, the older the pig gets, the more they tend to dry out. So the, the muscles tend to become drier. And obviously, you know, if you're making something like pancetta or capicolo, what are you trying to do? You're trying to remove moisture to try and dry cure it slowly. So you sort of, you got a head start with a larger pig, but also um, that level of marbling and muscle structure depth of color comes with an older pig. Wow. And Western, Western Plains, did, did you work with them closely to create a pig just for you? Yeah, we did. So I came back, um, had a meeting at the farm with Judy and Tim um, and sort of showed them, you know, I I took photos everywhere I went when I was in France, obviously, and and Tim was quite gobsmacked at how similar these French pigs were to the ones that he had grown in his paddock out here in Western Victoria. And um, we, we we sort of put together a plan you know, I said to them, you know, they, they need to be bigger guys. We need to make, we need that, they need to grow out. So we um, we had numerous um, meetings uh, with animal nutritionists and things like that about feed. I had feed sheets that I brought back um, that we that we had a bit of a look at and all that sort of stuff. And um, and they, you know, they were they were good enough to actually put together or put aside a parcel of land out there where they could start growing out pigs for salt kitchen charcuterie. Um, And, you know, in the beginning it was small because, you know, this business started with me wandering around in here on my own, you know, um, probably singing to myself most days, you know, Um, and uh, cutting up two pigs a week, you know, a couple of hundred kilos and now we're sort of processing 16 to 18 a week, you know, two, two tonne plus. Um, so it's sort of grown from that in the space of four and a half to five years. Um, and, yeah, the faith that they showed in me to, you know, 
put together a parcel of land out there and manage pigs in a way that I was needing them to be done. Um, you know, I'm forever grateful to them and it's it's been a great relationship that I'm really pleased it's ongoing today. Once you had the, the pig lined up and the, the one that you need for your, the best charcuterie, you know, what, what are some of the hurdles or elements required in making charcuterie? Is it, It's quite a challenging thing because um, you might not know what the end product is until months later. Well, that was a scary bit at the start, Anthony, I can tell you. It's when you start laying down... Um, <laughs> When you start laying down product um, and not knowing, you know, your first batch of something, not knowing what it's going to be like until sort of two and a half to three months later, it's um, it's a bit daunting. But, you know, my experience overseas, my experience in kitchens, um, you know, even working with the Grossies, that we made a lot of stuff there. They still do salumi days to, to this day with the, the Grossies. You know, I could draw on... Um, knowledge that I had of how to make the product um, and I knew I knew what I needed to do in terms of my skill set was good enough to actually produce the product the most daunting part was um, regulations you know especially here in Victoria we've got a really strict um, set of regulations that we have to follow to produce small goods um, and you know, they're the rules, the rules are the rules, but getting your head around documents that are pages and pages long about, um, you know, um, bacterias and uh, everything that it takes to make a food safe product in, in the meat industry was, was really, really daunting at the beginning um, and something that I've had to sort of learn and evolve as time's gone on. Can you pick one of the, one of your star products and take us from, sort of animal to finished product, what what does it take to make great charcuterie? Well, I mean, one of my favourites is Capicolo. I've always loved Capicolo. Um, I think, you know, um, it, it's it, I've always got it in my fridge. I'm always eating Capicolo and my belly will tell you that. It's it's bigger than it used to be. Um, it, and Capicolo is a testament really to um, what we're trying to do with a larger pig. So it's it's that scotch muscle, um, you know, the back of the head, um, top of the rib, essentially. That if you think about what a pig does in the paddock, they just they forage all day, you know. They they um, dig up the paddocks out there at Western Plains. Like if anyone that's ever been out there, it looks like the moon sometimes. It's just been uh, you know completely d- dug up and turned over, and then they move them to the next paddock, and away they go again. And the thing is with digging up paddocks the muscle that they're using the most is that neck muscle you know from the capicolo now a pig that um, probably only gets the opportunity to do it for a number of months of its life um, won't develop what we're after whereas one that's been you know grown out to the size and weight that we're after um, so you first and foremost like anything any cook will ever tell you it's about the product you start with something that is premium that is amazing that you cut into with your knife and you marvel at, and I genuinely do with um, neck muscles, with capicolo. That spider web of fat that goes through those muscles, uh, it is it is beautiful. I think it's stunning. Um, and that is, that is a perfect example of what we're trying to do here. Those bigger muscles um, that are going to lose a large percentage of their weight as it contracts and loses that over, the per- over a period of maturation um, intensifies flavour. 
and the fats just like silk, as I said before. Um, so it's, uh, that uh, the capicola is a product that is all about these pigs that we're getting. We're heading towards Christmas and um, Christmas hams are always in just about every household in Australia. But there's, you know, vast differences between a good ham and a great ham. Can you tell us what it takes to make, uh, make a great leg ham? Yeah, well, ham's been an evolution for me, like all my products have. Like, I, I started out, um, I started out wanting to use no additional preservatives in my ham and bacon, um, no nitrites, um, and I found out pretty quickly that that was going to be really hard for people to receive with ham in particular. We still make nitrite-free bacon, I'm pleased to say, um, but nitrite free ham was really hard for a small producer that wasn't doing markets to explain why it wasn't holding a bright pink color every time um, someone would get the product um, so we sort of evolved but we we I've always wanted to not use a pre-made mix with the ham that we make we we make our own tea um, for the injection that goes into the ham for our brine that goes into the ham um, of different spices and aromats that we put into it. Um, but it, it, I've learned over time that uh, there's, there's so much technical, um, there's so much technical knowledge that I've attained in the last five years about making hams to make sure it's not too dry, to make sure that the cook time's right, to get the reddening right at the start of um, cook. Um, is it sm smokes like salt and pepper, you know, you add too much of it. It's like, it's too much if you you don't add enough where is it you know um it's been a real um it's been a test over time and we've added equipment to to this facility over the space of five years to improve those processes along the way but i'm really grateful for having to do it on a really basic level at the start because you learn your product you understand your product you know um you know how much time takes it too far to make it too dry um, as an example. Mick, what is it that you love the most about what you do? Well, as I mentioned before, obviously that first cut when you actually get to see the cross-section of what you've just produced and um, all that long and hard work sort of um, comes to fruition. Um, but also, I suppose the best part about making this sort of product is that I love to eat it. Um, and sitting down with uh, my colleagues here who uh, you know, are as passionate about charcuterie as I am, we sort of get to taste um, these products day in, day out, week in and week out um, and assess and you get a really good feel and understanding for your product, how to improve it, um, what works, what doesn't work when you're in the testing phase as well. So I love that. I love that part of it where, you know, that's the creative part. Um, we're in a kitchen, I suppose, in a commercial kitchen, you're doing that day in and day out, coming up with new dishes. Here it's it's more of a, a weekly or a monthly thing when you're developing something. This charcuterie journey that you've been on, have there been any unexpected sort of joys or surprises along the way? The, I suppose the, it's been a surprise, the, the, the goodwill of people that I've, I still work with now and the ones that I've worked with in the past. I started out um, this business targeting restaurants as my customer. Um, and whilst I was confident and sure that I could make a good product still does, you know, humble me and surprise me that people supported it. You know, I've got customers still that I've had from day one 
and have sort of seen the full evolution of our product list and and um, you know how we've evolved the business and sort of supported us along the way and um, yeah it's I mean that's just a great feeling to sort of have you know people that I, I know and respect that have followed me and, and continue to support me all the way. We briefly touched on hams and Christmas hams is there any sort of tips you can give for that period of time when uh, in regards to storage and, and use of ham over that sort of festive season? Yeah, well, a good handbag is, I think, a, a great thing, especially if you're buying a larger ham uh, uh, on the bone. Um, you know, I eat ham right into mid-January, I think, um, across the Christmas period because it's always in the in, in the fridge. Um, yeah, so a good handbag, make sure you keep it nice and damp and moist to protect, to protect the ham. And also... When you take that skin off the top of the ham, keep that as a, an additional protective layer to sit on top of um, the cut side of your ham. Um, and the only other one I would say is uh, with glazing, you know, um, it looks amazing, I think, to stud a ham with cloves. I think they look incredible and fantastic, but a whole clove is not always the most pleasant thing to eat. I, I'm one for sort of blending blending the clove up and actually mixing it through your glaze and basting it um, with uh, on top of your ham, um, you know, rather than studding it if you don't need that visual um, appeal at the, at the Christmas table. Well, that's a pretty good tip, but I've got to ask you, are you, do you prefer to bake your ham or do you prefer to have it in the fridge to slice for a couple of weeks? It changes every year. If I'm being honest, some, some years <laughs> I, I feel, inspired to yeah to bake and glaze and then other years you just want the simplicity of yeah just good slicing ham in the fridge i don't have a preference either way and i love both oh well well answered thank you (laughs) well mick we've loved having a chat with you on the crackling Uh, christmas is coming pretty soon and no doubt people will be knocking on your door for some hams Um, keep in touch Um, it's been great chatting we'll talk again soon appreciate it thanks a lot this is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.